we continue our journey. And it really has been a journey. I think we started back on uh, July 19. Bob Phillips kicked off this series for us. And it's going to take us all the way through the month of October. And today is the account of the first missionary journey. And let me just tell you, I will not do justice to two entire chapters of Scripture during these next several minutes. But what I want to look at this morning is really the lessons learned on the first missionary journey. It made me think that any time you go on a journey, any time anyone goes on a journey, they come home from that journey or even in the midst of that journey, they can learn lessons about life, lessons about themselves, their family, whatever it may be. For instance, this summer, I've talked with you about our family vacation. We went to Washington, D.C. and the Williamsburg, Virginia area. And just reflecting, getting ready for this message, there were several lessons I learned on the Taylor family vacation journey this summer. For instance, you can't get to Washington, D.C. by car from here unless you go through some pretty serious mountain areas, up and down and all around and curving, and uh, sometimes that's good for the stomach, sometimes that's not, but the point is it looks really good on the map. We're going to get from here to here in a lickety-split kind of time, but when you're going through mountains, it's going to take a little bit longer. That's a lesson that I learned on our journey. I've always kind of prided myself, and pride is a, is a bad thing in many ways, but I've always kind of prided myself on being a roller coaster machine. And what I mean by that is, you bring the roller coaster, and I'm good to go. I don't care where they go or what they do, loop, dupe, whatever it may be, I'm good to go. And I learned this summer, the summer that I turned 40, that I just can't do the roller coaster thing like I used to be able to, especially not after you've eaten something. Now, that's not a good plan, necessarily. Bush Gardens, uh, the Alpine Express, or whatever it may be, uh, I'll never get on that ever again the rest of my life. I'm getting too old for it. That's a lesson that I learned on the journey. I love history. History is and was my favorite subject in school growing up and even to this day. And I learned this summer on our Taylor family journey that my children, at least at this point in their lives, at 13 and at 9, they don't have the same love for history that I have. After about our third day at Colonial Williamsburg, they were saying things like, Dad, do we have to have another history day? Can we please go to the water park? Can we please do anything other than history? That was a lesson that I learned on the journey at Washington, D.C. I learned a lesson that those folks take security really seriously in the nation's capital. Um, when they say don't make jokes, don't don't cut up, they, they mean it. It's a pretty serious deal. Um, they're intense about security in our nation's capital, and rightly so. We have with us Dwight and Dwayne Good, the Good Twins, and they're going to be in concert tonight. They've been singing for 51 years together in Christian music ministry. Give them a hand for that, by the way. That's a great thing. Amen. And they're actually going to close our service today with a special and talk a little bit about what's going to happen tonight. I hope you'll come back tonight at 6 p.m. But my guess is if I gave Dwight or Dwayne the microphone and came up and said, come on up on the stage and share some lessons from your journey of life. They've learned a lot of lessons serving the Lord through music ministry over the years. We have with us Marsha Miles from Pioneer Bible Translators. And many of you were blessed to hear her during our Bible school hour today. And she's going to talk a little bit later in our service this morning. But my guess is if I gave Marsha the microphone right now and came up and said, give us some lessons from the journey you've been on in life, she'd have a lot to share. Kent Hickerson. 
been serving the Lord in vocational ministry for many, many years. If he were to come up, there are many lessons that he's learned from the journey. So what can we learn this morning? As we look at Acts chapter 13 and 14, again, we don't have time to go verse by verse through these two chapters of Scripture, but I want to share with you five lessons that I learned studying this missionary journey, and I think they're all very relevant for my life and your life as believers. Lesson number one is this. See this in the Scripture. Lesson one, the journey comes about as a result of worshiping the Lord, praying, and fasting. The journey comes about as a result of worshiping the Lord, praying, and fasting. Look at the very beginning of Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. It says, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, why they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Lesson one, the journey comes about as a result of worshiping the Lord and praying and fasting. Most of you know that I spent eight years serving at what is now Lincoln Christian University, uh, many of those years as the director of admissions. And I would meet wonderful Christian young men and young women who would come in, and many of them were very focused on saying, God, wherever you want me to go, I am willing to go. Some of them came maybe thinking one thing and ended up leaving going somewhere else. But every once in a while, I would meet a very, very talented student, and, and their M.O. was a little differently. They would come in and they would say, you know, not a big fan of the local church. Too many problems. You know, you've got elders and all kinds of different things. Don't want to go down that road necessarily. No, what I want to do is I want to be a conference speaker. I want to travel from conference to conference to conference and stay in the nice hotel and eat at the restaurant. And, you know, if it's a large enough conference, I can be the keynote speaker. And, and I thought to myself, the common theme in their story would be, I, 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 I. Where in their testimony, where in their, their, their vision, where in their plan was, Lord, what's your will for my life? I contrast that with my good friend Rondell Ramsey, a professor now at LCU for many years, uh, probably the best youth minister that I know, um, was in Streeter, Illinois. Early in his ministry in Streeter, his home church in Anderson, Indiana, said, Rondell, come home. Come serve with us. And I'm just getting to know him. I was 19. It was my first year as a part-time youth minister. Rondell did something that was really unheard of, at least in my world up to that point. He left beautiful Streeter, Illinois, and traveled to beautiful Ottawa, Illinois, checked into, I want to say, a Motel 6 or something like that, and he spent 24 hours in that motel fasting, praying, reading Scripture, seeking God's will for his life. I remember asking him, did you catch up on daytime TV while we were there? A lot of TV time. Never turned the TV on. I just spent time seeking God's will for my life. And he said at the end of that time, it was abundantly clear to him that the Lord was calling him to stay right where he was. The Lord was saying, don't go home. Your work in Streeter is not finished. I have a question for you this morning. It's a question that I think is very relevant in light of this study. And here it is. Do we spend enough time seeking God's will for our lives and for our church? When's the last time you skipped lunch on a Thursday and fasted and prayed for your leaders? 
When's the last time you skipped an entire day of meals and said, Lord, what are you calling me to do in this season of my life? Do we spend enough time seeking God's will for our lives? Lesson number two, the journey, the missionary journey, brings about gospel expansion. Now look at this next slide. Here's the missionary journey in a nutshell. They left Antioch for the port city of Seleucia. They sailed to the island of Cyprus where they preached at Salamis and Paphos, sailed to Perga, traveled to the Pisidian region, visiting Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and then back all the way to the province of Pamphylia, stopped by Perga and Attilia, and then sailed home to Antioch. And the next slide actually is a map. Look at this map. Look at the place that they went. This was a journey that took two and a half years, most scholars estimate. This was a serious, serious attempt to say, where is the gospel not? Where's the gospel not? And that's where we're going to go. And the gospel expands as a result of their vision. Again, we aren't reading verse by verse this morning. Could I challenge you to do that today, this afternoon, this evening, this week? You'll be amazed at all that they encounter. It's during this first missionary journey at Pisidian Antioch that we see Paul's first recorded sermon. And it's an excellent, excellent sermon. Don't forget, we shared a couple weeks ago that when you go through the book of Acts, a lot of times people think, oh, it's just history. I don't need to study it intently. But many of the sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts, sermons by Peter, sermons by Paul, they are great learning opportunities for us today. People say, Greg, I don't know my faith as well as I should. Read some of the sermons in the book of Acts and you'll be amazed at how the gospel, the good news, is presented literally in a nutshell in many ways. It's a lesson to the, the, the gospel expand. Gospel expansion is taking place. And I ask the question, are we doing enough today to contribute to gospel expansion? Not just for today, but for tomorrow. I get a little bit out of shape when someone comes to me and they say, we're spending too much money on missions. We've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to worry about us. We, we are the mission. And I, I couldn't disagree more with that mentality. I couldn't disagree more with that mindset. I said in first service, and I think a couple people, their eyes kind of rolled back, but I think it's impossible to spend too much money on missions. I've never heard of a church that spent too much money on missions. I don't think you can do it. Are we doing enough to contribute to gospel expansion today and tomorrow? Lesson number three. The journey brings about disappointments and persecution and suffering for God's missionaries. You know, I'm not sure we really do justice to missions, and I'm guilty of this, but when we do a mission report Sunday, it's always peaches and cream, isn't it? It's always the highlights, it's always the best times, it's always um, eating the gigantic Sunday together, something along those lines, and I'm not sure we really do justice to how difficult mission work is and how painful mission work can be personally in many ways. I want you to see real quick, I'm going to do this kind of quickly, but look at all the disappointments or persecution or suffering that takes place just in this first missionary journey. Acts 13.13, it says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. This is John Mark, author of the Gospel of Mark, eventually. But he drops out. We don't know why. 
But he abandons the team at this point. And that's bad for John Mark, but that's bad for Paul and Barnabas. They have to continue on in the work without one of their teammates. And that's a disappointment, and it makes times tough. Look at verse 45 of Acts chapter 13. It says, On next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 45, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Skip down to verse 49. It says, The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. I love verse 51. It's not really even part of what I'm talking about here, but I had to throw it in. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them, and they went on to Iconium. Look at chapter 14, beginning with verse 4. It says, The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Verse 5, There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and to stone them. And then if you jump all the way down to verse 19, preaching in another location, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city. We've talked about persecution before. We've talked about suffering before. But for so many of us, we have a one-zip code worldview. We have a one-zip code mentality. What's that mean? That means when you see the world, all you see is 61727. Or in my case, all I would see is 62518. Or people over at Lincoln, all they see is 62656. We need more than a one-zip-code worldview, more than a one-zip-code theology. And we need to understand that missionaries today, in 2009, are literally paying the ultimate price for taking the gospel literally across the world. And I have two questions here. Are we disappointment-proof in our faith? Are we persecution-proof? in our faith. At what point would you be willing to say, it's not worth it. By faith, I'm going the other way. At what point would you say, I can't take anymore. I'm done. God, I'm finished with you. I'm moving on. I I hope that never happens. But can I tell you, the testimony of many is that when, when something bad happened, when suffering came their way, threw their faith away and moved on. Paul and Barnabas, what great testimonies they have here in the the text of God's Word. When struggles came their way, when disappointments, when suffering, when persecution, what did they do? Did they quit? Did they throw in the towel? Did they say, it's been a year and a half, it's time to go home? They shook the dust off their feet and they went on. They said, we're not quitting. We're not giving up. We're in this for the long haul. Lesson number four. The journey brings about theological misunderstandings. And I want to spend some time looking at this, uh, 
talking about an instance that happened in Lystra. Let's read together verses 8 through 18 of chapter 14. It says, In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. Now, he listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowds wanted to offer spiritual sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past He let all nations go their own way, yet He has not left Himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from the heavens and crops in the seasons. He's provided you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. This is an example of people having a very poor theology. They thought because Paul had performed the miracle of healing that they obviously had to be the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. And, and Paul and Barnabas, you know, they are prepared for that. They're ready to deal with that wrong theology, that bad theology, that poor theology. Deal with it right away. They say absolutely not. They do everything in their power to let them know that that is not the case. But there is a God in heaven. And He's the God of heaven and earth. They use nature. They use the crops as an illustration of the Lord of all. How strong are you in your faith? How well do you know your faith? Do you have your own faith? Is it your faith or is it somebody else's faith? Can I tell you that at the age of 18, looking back on things, I'm convinced that I had the faith of Jim and Dorothy Taylor in Champaign, Illinois. Now, that's not a totally bad thing because they are people of faith. They love the Lord. But I could not say at 18 that it was my own faith. I wish I could. And I thank the Lord that I went to a place that was at that time known as Lincoln Christian College. And I helped develop a faith that was my own. But can I tell you, many of the young people that I grew up with, many of the teenagers that I grew up with, um, not sure they ever developed that faith of their own. That's not the church's fault. That's their fault. That was my fault. And so I ask you today, do you have a faith that's yours? Do you have a faith that you own? Could you articulate what you believe? If someone stood in this pulpit, we had a guest preacher come in, and they started to espouse poor theology, bad theology, would you recognize it? Do you know your faith? Question for us today. Are we prepared to answer and explain poor or wrong theology? You know, there's a lot of bad theology going on in the world today. And more than likely, you won't hear it at your church, but you might hear it at the lunchroom. Or you might hear it at the football field. Or you might hear it at the neighborhood cookout. Do you own your faith to the point that you have an answer? Lesson four. The journey brought about theological misunderstandings. Number five. We're almost finished. 
The journey emboldens God's missionaries in the face of danger. I'm going to read for you verses 19 to 26 of Acts 14. I love this. Then some of the Jews came to Antioch and Iconium. They won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city. They thought he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Listen to this. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, then Iconium, then Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And after going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, where they preached the word in Perga and then went down to Attilia. And from Attilia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. When the going got tough, Paul and Barnabas and their team got going. How many of us, if we had been stoned someplace, or we had literally almost lost our life, would dare ever go back there, much less on the same journey? They were undeterred because the gospel emboldened them. The journey emboldened them. And my guess is their, their, their thought was something like this. Live or die, we serve Christ. We preach Christ. That's a passion I want to have. At this point, I'm going to ask Marsha to come on up here. And Marsha, I may have messed up and lost a microphone here. Let me grab it here. This is Marsha Miles from Pioneer Bible Translators, and she's been with us all morning. And Marsha spoke to our uh, Bible school group and did a wonderful job. We're going to sit over here again. And Marsha and her late husband did an incredible thing. They were able to translate the entire New Testament into the language that is spoken in a place called Papua New Guinea. And just that alone is just incredible. But Marsha, you, you've heard my sermon twice now, uh, unfortunately. You had to hear it twice. But, um, good job, good job. What, what do you take as we talk about lessons from the journey in Acts 13 and 14, and you think of your life and your journey, what can you give us today as a word of encouragement? One thing that strikes me is that God is doing incredible things globally today. The kingdom is expanding, and it is so exciting to be a part of that. And I think that in the same way that the church in Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas, and they went um, to share the gospel in faraway places, then they came back to Antioch and reported in. And that church at Antioch, the sending church, was so core to what happened on the journey. I just want to say to you all, thank you for your part in world missions. I know that you've partnered um, faithfully uh, with Gerald and Ruth Denny um, as they have worked with Pioneer Bible Translators and thus, through their ministry, supported all of us in the far-flung places of the world. And you are a part of what God's doing. And I just want you to know that God is doing amazing things through your prayers and your financial giving and your faithful uh, way that you are living out um, your life before him here. Uh, Pioneer Bible Translators is working all around the world in hidden places, jungles and deserts and people groups where... um, Previously, there's been no written form of the language, even no alphabet. And what we do is to go in and and learn the language and develop the alphabet and develop literacy programs to teach people how to read and then translate the scriptures into those languages. So thank you. 
I thank you from 10,000 Adorama people where John and I worked and from many, many other people groups. You know, I'm embarrassed as an English-speaking person to, to share that there are hundreds of English translations. We actually yeah. have conferences where we get together and try to decide which English translation is best, and yet there are yes. how many people groups that don't have any written? Still language? remaining. Yeah. 2,251 people wow. groups today that don't have any scripture in them. It's wow. less than it was. I mean, yeah. when Gerald and Ruth went out and when my husband and I went out um, to the field, um, half of the language groups in the world didn't have a translation at that point. Today, uh, we're, we're whittled it down to a third. We're making big progress. And at this point, uh, translation organizations around the world are linking arms and thinking strategically, thinking together about finishing the task and in highly effective ways, thinking out of the box, thinking in very creative ways. And in our um, next few years, we are all collectively aiming to see, by uh, 2018, to see all language groups of over 100,000 with translation projects begun. And then by 2033, um, to see all uh, languages started. And this is a tall order. And we need your prayers. We need your partnership. We cannot do this without you. It's, it's, yeah. We're all in this together. So, hallelujah. We, we, by 2050, we think that on the trajectory that we are on now around the world, that there will be the scriptures in, in every language on the planet. So, you know, we're Amen. in a mopping up phase, Amen. and it, it, it's a God thing. It's so a God thing. So in 2050, we can celebrate Ernie Harvey's 81st birthday <laughs> and celebrate the fact that, uh, that, that Bible translation there you go. is everywhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. we talked this morning. What really struck yeah. me this week, probably more than anything, I've read the missionary journey many times, but... You know, just the disappointment that they face yeah. and the persecution that they face. And I know your story isn't all peaches and cream, no. as I like to say. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? I have a really hard part to, to our story on the mission field. Um, just as uh, John and I completed the translation of the New Testament, um, it was being printed in the, Korea, in, in the country of Korea, and um, my husband uh, died. Uh, on the mission field of a heart attack. Um, so this is a hard thing for me to talk about still, and I, it's been quite painful. And we have, you know, three kill, three kids, and um, it's, uh, the Lord has, has carried us through and ministered lovingly and kindly to us through through many people around the world. Um, but as one Adoramu man said in a memorial service for John. He said, we know that John gave his entire adult life so that we could have God's word in our heart language. He said, we raise our gardens and, and, and we know that what Jesus said is true. Unless the seed falls to the ground and, and, and dies, it, it doesn't bear fruit. And so he said, I'm praying that God will send a harvest of revival in our people group because of what has happened. You know, there are very few things on this planet that are eternal, but God's Word is one of those things. Amen. Amen. Jesus said that. He said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will not pass away. And it just comes down to me to the thought that some things in life are worth living for and some things are worth dying for. I so 
want my life to count for what is eternally significant. Don't you? Amen. We do. Amen. We want it to matter for all of eternity. Amen. So, Amen. I could tell you this. We have a happy piece of our story that's happened in the last couple of years. I've remarried. Amen. And I know God is so yeah. good to me. He's yeah. brought me Nathan Miles, who yeah. it works for United Bible Societies. Yeah. And... I, also in Bible translation. I mean, when John died, I thought, no way. Who would I ever find that could yeah. have the same heart? But the yeah. Lord did that. And, Amen. you know, when we were we were preparing for our wedding, and uh, Nathan has three uh, adult children, and I have my three kids, and we're blending this huge family, you know. And in the be in a the, good TV show. I know. Yeah, well, I would, yeah, you know, yeah. Brady Bunch yeah, or something, yeah, Miles yeah, Bunch, yeah, something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. So in the middle of all this, you know, I thought – Wedding planning is what we do, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We are the bride of Christ. Amen. And so what we're about here, here in Clinton, yeah. is preparing the bride for that day when we will meet the Lord as part of the bride, spotless and without blemish. And that's what we're doing on the front lines, too, Amen. in missions, preparing the bride to, to meet him one day. You know, it's his dream or his wedding day that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation there around his throne to meet him. Amen. So we're part of that. Amen. Amen. Wedding planning. Amen. Yeah. Hey, can I invite you when our service is over? Marsha has a booth out in our foyer area, and I would encourage you to stop by. A lot of resources out there. And, um, and, and pray for Pioneer Bible Translators. What, what a difference making organization. I want to pray for you right now. Can I do that? Could I just mention one little thing? uh, I'd love to invite you, if you don't already get our monthly email uh, newsletter or and prayer updates. I know some of you do. Um, I've seen some of your names on the list, and thank you for praying. If you don't get that and would like to keep up every month and know how to pray, please sign up on the list out there. That'd be fabulous. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm. Hey, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Marsha and John and just the blessing that they were and are. Through, through your written word and the translation. And j- just give her strength as she continues to serve you. I pray that you be with her three children and uh, really her six children. And just that uh, they would continue to serve you, Father, as well. We love you so much. We thank you for the difference that PBT is making, continues to make. And we just pray that all across our country, as people hear Marcia's story and the story of people like Gerald and Ruth Denny, that that they will have a vision that goes beyond that one zip code worldview. And that they'll say, maybe I can go to a place like Papua New Guinea or Ghana or someplace where your word is needed. Thank you, Father. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Marcia. You know, I can't end a sermon without giving you a bottom line. So we're going to fire up the uh, projector real quick here. And the bottom line of this message really, I think, is pretty simple. I think it's pretty obvious. You probably gathered it already. Despite the struggles and the setbacks, Paul and Barnabas, they boldly made a difference for Christ on their journey. There's no doubt about that. You can't read the book of Acts and not see the difference that they were able to make. But here it is in 2009. We are called to boldly make a difference for Christ in our journey of life today. In Clinton, in DeWitt County, in the state of Illinois, in our country, throughout the world. Don't ever lose sight of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and the chance to uh, to be encouraged by your written word.
to bless you, Father, with our worship. To be encouraged by a testimony that, that is so powerful. And Father, through it all, help us to dream big dreams. Help us to continue to seek your will for our lives. Help us to never be content with who we are or where we are. But to boldly strive to make a difference. We love you, Father. And it's